Hi, everybody. Thanks for welcoming us into your homes. We're beginning a brand new series this week, and it's called, I Used to Think, But Now I Know. Bob Goff wrote a New York Times bestseller called Love Does. He's a law professor and a follower of Jesus, and has started a nonprofit organization which helps bring childhood prisoners uh, to trial in underdeveloped countries. And uh, his book, Love Does, has uh, prompted my thinking on a number of areas. And in particular, uh, some of his quotes in the book have uh, led me to think through some of the issues he was dealing with. And most of the quotes go something like this, I used to think, but now I know. And the one that I want to talk about this week is, I used to think love was great to think about. Now I know love never stops at thinking. And the passage of scripture that, that comes to mind when we, when we think about that kind of issue where we, where we tend to be enamored about love or think a lot about love but never really practice what Jesus teaches is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. It goes like this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Let's pray. So Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage of scripture to remember that to really know you is to love one another. And it's not enough just to be enamored or to think about or to realize your love or to experience the love of Jesus in our lives, but we must learn to love one another as you did and to live as you lived. In your name we pray, amen. So in 1 John, in the little book of 1 John, John, the author, is refuting some of the false teaching spreading in the church. And his false claims, or the false claims that he refutes in chapter 1, are in verses 6 and 8 and 10. Uh, false claims went something like this. If we claim to have fellowship, yet walk in darkness, well, you don't know what you're talking about. If we claim to be well out sin, well, again, you don't know what you're talking about. If we claim to have not sinned, not ever sinned, then you don't know what you're talking about. And so John goes on to refute these kinds of claims that some of the false teachers were making in the first century. Now in chapter 2 in our text, more false claims are refuted. This false claim is about knowing God. How do you discern if someone says they know God, if they really truly know God? Now, after all, we're not supposed to judge people. Matthew chapter 7 or verse 1 says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. But then in Matthew 7 verse 16, Jesus says, By their fruit you should know them. So we are, we are challenged or we are, we are prompted then to be discerning but not judgmental. And there's a big difference between being judgmental and being discerning. Being judgmental is saying something like, that person is going to hell. Being discerning is some, saying something like this. That person is in a really bad place right now. You see, judgment is, is when we 
become the final arbitrator or we make a final decision or we are perceiving ourselves to make a final decision about a person's life. Discerning is simply looking at the fruit of their lives and saying, well, right now, this is, seems to be where that person is at. And so Jesus has called us to be fruit inspectors, to discern where people are at, but not to make any final call or try to make any final call on a person's life or the outcome of a person's life. So these people, false teachers, were claiming to know God, but they weren't walking or living like Jesus. They were claiming to uh, have had a mystical experience, a, an experience with, with Jesus or with God that, that, that made them lay claim to the idea that they had got this true, special knowledge from God. This, the technical term for this kind of error in the church is called proto-Gnosticism, which is a, a, a kind of uh, way of thinking that uh, all flesh is uh, evil and spirit is good and that you can separate the two and that a secret knowledge would come to you from God and this would elevate you above everybody else in the world and this knowing of God would be so special and, and be such a wonderful experience it would elevate you to another level so that the physical world became uh, really irrelevant to you and you're just caught up in this kind of spiritual realm. Well, John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. If you say you know him and you don't keep his commands, you are a liar. Pretty straightforward. So in other words, any claim to know God any claim to have experienced God must be demonstrated with obedience to Jesus. Uh, experiencing Jesus, in other words, is the true test of whether or not someone knows God. Now, there are wonderful experiences that we can have with Jesus. Uh, people have visions and dreams, and, and uh, people have encounters with angels, and, and all kinds of supernatural things happen in people's lives. And what, what John is, is doing, he's not, he's not denigrating those things. He's not things, saying those things are bad, but he's saying, you know, that's not the be-all and end-all. If, if you really know God, you're going to act like it. You're not going to just rely on these spiritual experiences, you're going to obey his commands. In particular, you're going to be loving or walking as Jesus walked. There's an expression that my dad, who was a pastor for 50 years, used to say. He used to say, it doesn't matter how high you jump as long as you walk straight when you hit the ground. And by that, he was meaning just this. It doesn't matter that you've had this tremendous experience with God. It's, it's heartwarming, it's refreshing, it's rejuvenating. The real issue is, are you living by faith? Are you walking in the knowledge of God in your obedience to his commands? Uh, so knowing God is also not academic or theoretical or mere speculation. It's not like knowing the prime minister. You know, if you ask any um, grade five kid, do you know the prime minister of Canada? They will say, oh, of course, it's Justin Trudeau. Well, they don't really mean that they know him in any personal way. They just know who he is. And in the Bible, when it uses that word uh, know, it means to know someone intimately. Uh, it's alternately described, even in our text, knowing God is described as uh, being in him. Uh, this is how we know we are in him. John says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So uh, there is a relationship between 
knowing God and being in him. This brings up kind of a, an idea that John developed in chapter 15 of his gospel, where he says that if we are to uh, remain in him uh, and he remains in us, we're going to produce much fruit. This, this talk about the vine and the branches and, and remaining, abiding in him. And this is the idea. Knowing God is like being in him and him in us. It's more than simply knowing something about him, some factual information about him. It's about knowing him intimately. So contrary to the false claims of knowing God, Really knowing God means obeying his commands and walking like Jesus did. And of course, his command is to love one another. And 1 John is all about that. John's gospel was all about that as he called himself the beloved disciple. We think particularly about uh, Jesus saying that this is how all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, keep in mind that what we have just said, what we have just understood John to be saying to us here is completely countercultural in the day in which we live. Uh, people today believe that authority is located in something inside themselves, not in a truth outside themselves. Today's value system, of course, is far different from that of the first century. There were four basic values in the first century. According to Gordon Fee in his book, Offer Yourselves to God. The first value that first century Christians held dearly was the value of honor and shame. We might talk about it in terms of losing face or keeping face. This idea that, that how you behave would perhaps shame you or your, or your family. This was really, really important to them in that day. The second value that they held very dearly was a patron-client relationships. And like in our culture, most people were not privileged or had no opportunity to achieve uh, uh, status in the culture. Uh, those who had status in the culture were patrons, and they gave favors to those who served them, uh, servants and slaves and friends and people attached to them. And that patron-client relationship was incredibly important to maintain. And most of uh, uh, Paul's writing uh, is talking to this relationship or the, or the patron and, and their responsibility to their clients or to those under them in the pecking order of their society. The third value of the first century culture would be kinship, family, and household. And that's why genealogies were so important in the New Testament. Um, you, who, you were who your family was. You identified with your fathers. You were the son of so-and-so and the son of so-and-so and the son of so-and-so. And people knew each other, not just individually, but in accord to their family relationships. And then fourthly, the value of the culture was uh, in regard to conformity to their religious laws. You see, there were very few agnostics in that culture, very few, perhaps no atheists. And the people in that day uh, were always concerned about remaining uh, in good standing with whichever gods they worshipped. And, and except for the Jews and the Christians, uh, people worshipped many gods, but endeavored to keep in good standing with all of those gods. So, so purity in regard to their observance of the religious laws was incredibly important to them. How vastly different that is from our culture today. 
There have been three major shifts that have changed the, changed the cultural landscape in, in our society. The first is from community to the individual, and this was because of the Enlightenment. Our emphasis today is on individuality and not so much on our community. Uh, the Enlightenment was all about reason and the importance of reason, and that through our thinking, we could arrive at truth. So it wasn't relying on someone to uh, download truth to us, to see truth in what someone else gave us, but rather that we could arrive at truth by our own reasoning. And this elevated the priority of the individual to determine in their own mind the, the values uh, that they decided to embrace. Secondly, there has been a shift from production of goods in the home to production of goods in the workplace because of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, before 1885, 1915 or so, uh, people would produce goods in their homes. And so tradespeople would train their sons or daughters to help them in the home produce goods. In fact, in the years between 1885 and 1915, there was a complete shift in where goods were manufactured. In 1885, 85% of all the goods that were for sale were produced in people's homes. By 1915, only 15% of the goods that were being produced were produced in people's homes, and 85% in the, were produced in the workplace. This means there was a huge shift in family dynamics. Uh, women began to work in industry. They left the home. Children, because parents were working outside the home, began to be educated by the state. And uh, they began to learn trades different from what their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents were involved with because now they were outside of the home learning trades uh, in an environment that was uh, offering them all kinds of different opportunities. The third major shift in values that has happened over the centuries for our culture has been from authority residing in something outside ourselves, like religion or the law, to authority residing inside ourselves. In other words, in today's culture, and this is mainly due to the effect of postmodernism, in today's culture, my values, personal values, trump everything else outside of ourselves. So we determine the truth ourselves rather than relying on someone else to tell us the truth. So when we say that knowing God is demonstrated by obedience to Jesus in loving one another, we are bumping into today's values. In other words, we're saying we find truth outside ourselves. We believe what Jesus said is true. It's not up to me to determine the truth. It's what Jesus has said is the truth. And so we know that if knowing God is about obeying his commands, that I'm putting my trust in the fact that he has made this available and obvious to me, and so therefore I'll follow his way. So we find truth at ourselves. Not only that, we are elevating community above individuality when we talk about loving one another as a priority rather than simply loving ourselves. See, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ is quite contrary and revolutionary when we see how it contradicts with the values of our, of our current society. John writes, if anybody obeys 
his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. God's love can either either be our love for God, his love for us, or both. But something happens when we love one another. A wholeness, a fulfillment, a maturity, a completeness. However you describe it, something special happens when we love one another. God's love is made complete in us. Everyone wants this. Everybody wants this this sense of maturity, completeness, fullness, of of being loved, of of being uh, at peace with ourselves and with God. Everyone wants that. But most people are confused about how to get there. And of course, this is uh, one of the devil's plans, is to keep people trying all kinds of different things in order to obtain this, this, this sense of well-being that can only come through Jesus Christ and our obedience to his will and to his command. So followers of Jesus don't just think about love. They don't just talk about love. They don't just enjoy God's love or the experience of knowing Jesus. Their experience with Jesus instead results in obedience to Jesus' command to love one another. They, in other words, they submit to a higher calling, an outside principle, an agenda created by God outside of their own making. They commit to one another in love, and they walk as Jesus walked. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that we would walk as Jesus walked, that we would obey the command of Jesus to love one another. I pray that we would not just be content to experience God. And, and Lord, we thank you for all of the wonderful ways that you reveal yourself to us. And, And each one of us has our own story about how supernaturally you've come into our lives and and done things for us and lord we don't want to we don't want to stop there we want to realize that you desire us to be obedient because this is the true test of what it means to know you to be in you and for you to be in us so we pray lord that we wouldn't just stop at thinking about you and contemplating your goodness in our lives but we would respond in loving obedience to your command that we would love one another Help us to do it in practical ways. Help us to make a difference in the people, in the world around us. We recognize, Lord, that this is countercultural. It's not what a lot of people think is important. It's different. We pray that you would help us as we endeavor to follow Jesus with our entire lives. In your name, amen. There's going to be a question that comes up on your screen and I'd invite you to contemplate the question over the next minute or so and pray how that uh, you might respond to that question in your own life and in your own behavior. And then I'll come back with a concluding comment. On November 13th, 2010, a miracle happened in Niagara Falls, Canada. It took place in a shopping mall. And in all places, the food court of the shopping mall And the experience went viral. I don't know if you saw it or not. I did. I was amazed by it. It was the first experience that I've ever had in watching a flash mob. Because what happened is that an 80-voice choir snuck into the mall and sat in the food court. 
And it began, I, I think, with the janitor beginning to sing. And then all 80 voices of the choir stood up and sang Handel's Messiah. It was incredible. The acoustics were fantastic. And a cappella, they're singing Handel's Messiah. The people who were sitting in the food court didn't quite know what to do. Some of them stood, and particularly during the, uh, the chorus, the hallelujah chorus, of people all stood in their seats. People were singing along. People were weeping as, as the Handel's Messiah was being sung. And, and what made the miracle it, is that it was a miracle of contrast. In the banality of a shopping mall food court, with its sterility, with its anemic kind of colors, you have this cathedral atmosphere that's created by this 80-voice choir singing with, with great gusto, Handel's Messiah. I remember seeing that and being amazed by it and moved by it. Wow, a miracle of contrast. When we walk as Jesus walked, when we live as Jesus lived, when we love as Jesus loved, when we follow the Lord's command, it's a miracle of contrast in the context that Jesus has placed us. It revolutionizes things. It, it changes the banal living, the, the existence that, that, our, that our culture is, is tracking along with. And all of a sudden, people take notice. They pay attention. We change the places where, where we are at, whether it's work or home or, or wherever it may be, into a cathedral as we follow Jesus, as we walk as Jesus walked. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me, that I would change the world around me, but not just thinking about God and not just experiencing Jesus, but by truly loving people. The passage that I want to use for a doxology for this series is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week.